welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Program on Governance and Local Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. In the episode you're about to hear, we talk to Himanshu Ya, a faculty in the Department of Political Science at South Asia Institute, Hildenberg University, Germany. Himanshu's most recent research explores the process of institutional change, the Indian state and bureaucracy. However, it was Himantra's recently published book with the Oxford University Press that we spoke to him about. The book is called Capturing Institutional Change, the case of Right to Information Act in India. It examines what Right to Information actually does and the history leading up to it. Himantra further talks about norms of secrecy and openness and the impact that this act has had on India's democracy. You can find more information about Himanshu and his work in the description below. Hosting this podcast is GLD director Ellen Lust. Don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. And we hope you enjoyed the episode. So Himanshu, first of all, I really want to thank you for joining us today to talk about the Indian right to information. A lot of this is going to come from your book, Capturing Institutional Change, which was out from Oxford University Press in 2020. Then I want to, of course, extend and discuss a little bit about local implementation and local uptake of different sort of stages of right to information. But maybe you can set the stage for us just as the beginning. I mean, describe the history of the right to information in India and why it's so important. Thank you, Ellen. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. You know, I will start by talking about what right to information actually does and then get into a little bit about about its history and where it originates from. Right to information was promulgated in 2005 by the Indian Parliament. And what it does, it provides a legal regime to the citizens to access information from the state or public authorities. The right clearly defines what information is. So any record which is with the public authorities or certain items of information in any form, be it in electronic form or in form of files or any record, can be accessed by the citizens of India by invoking right to information. There are specific items of information which cannot be shared by the state, such as information related to trade or the internal security or information related to scientific agreements and so on and so forth. Interestingly, right to information has got a system of multiple appeals. So if in case you are refused an information in the first case, you can actually appeal and go for the second appeal and then the third appeal. And then ultimately, if that is also denied to you, you can actually go to the court as well. So the change is both de facto and de jure. You can actually approach the courts. Information can be provided within the stipulated time frame. So the time frame which is given is that within 30 days, uh, you should be able to get the information. There is provision for penalties in case the information is not provided. Penalty can be imposed on the airing officials. There are certain transparency and accountability norms which are actually built in the act. And that's what makes this act a robust act. So for instance, you know there are provisions for the ministries and the departments to maintenance of the record keeping, upkeep of their files, and so on and so forth. And there's also provision for proactive disclosure. Departments and ministries are encouraged to proactively disclose information in the public portal and in the public domain. And there's an overriding clause in RTI as well. So Section 22 of RTI's right to information says that in case of conflict with any other law, it is right to information which holds supreme. And so these are the main provisions of the law. But this was not always so. 
right? The information regime in India was actually governed by norm of secrecy, rights and independence. The governance processes were shrouded in secrecy and the legal regime actually, you know, leave alone demanding information from the state. It, the legal regime, which existed for a long period of time at, till 2005, actually weakened citizens' right to know. So this is the case of both persistence and change. As I kind of describe in the book, there is an institutional persistence of the norm of secrecy for a long period of time before it actually changes towards norm of openness in form of Right to Information Act. And so the legal regime, which preceded the Right to Information Act was actually governed by the Official Secrets Act of 1923, which actually made receiving information and giving out information a legal offense. And this was a colonial law. And then after post-independence, India actually adopted this law mechanically, merely removing the references to Great Britain and replacing it with India and just kind of automatically adapting it a law. And it was not only adapted at the local level after independence. This law, the Official Secrets Act, was actually amended to an even stronger version in 1967, followed by the Indo-Pak War and then the Indo-China War, to an even stronger version. It was actually a non-bailable, cognizable offense to receive and give out information to the citizens and the executive power to withhold information from the state was actually made stronger in those terms. And it was actually supported by other similar laws. So you had civil services conduct rules of 1964. You had in sections one, two, three of the Indian Evidence Act. You had manual and office procedures of government of India. You had manual of department security instructions. And all this, what it did was that it weakened citizens' right to know. Right. And this norm persisted for a long period of time. And what happens when a norm persists for a long period of time is that, you know, it creates a kind of a self-enforcing loop where previous institutional choices results in the formation of vast social and political network, which have vested interests in the persistence of this norm. And similarly, in Indian case, there was a vast bureaucratic and political network, which actually gained from this norm of secrecy, which gained from secrecy. And there was a lot of resistance to, towards change, right? There's a lot of resistance towards changing the information regime and be more open to its citizens. So the norm of secrecy actually persisted for a long period of time. Before we talk about the ways in which it changed, and I think it's it's a really important and interesting argument in your book that it changes in part because of changes within the state. And you talk about layering of changes, and we'll come to that in a moment. But I want us to come back to the sort of the, why this is so important to Indians, right? And you start with this story of Muslim at the beginning of, of the book, where Muslim is finding it very difficult to get what he needs from the government and then is basically encouraged to, to ask for the information about his case. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and about how often we see Muslims in India? Yeah, Muslims case is important uh, and significant. And that's why I kind of treated it as the beginning of this book, because it not only shows that citizens have rights in terms of accessing information from the state, but it also shows that people who have actually used these, these rights have been empowered in their own way in the local communities. And, and you see a number of cases which have emerged on the scene. But before I get into that, I want to kind of distinguish right to information from other rights-based legislations, which were promised 
promulgated at the same time. So right to information was promulgated at, enacted by the parliament at the time when you had similar rights-based legislations being worked out at the central level. So you had National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, which ensured 100 days of employment to the rural poor. Then and later on, you had right to education and so on and so forth. And yet right to information was was different because number one, it signified norm shift from the norm of secrecy. It signified a shift towards norm of openness. The other rights-based legislations represented a kind of a crossover between what an Indian constitution is called directive principles of state policy, which are like recommended policy steps to be taken by the government and the fundamental rights, right? So you had crossover between the directive principles of state policy and fundamental right. So right to live was fused with right to livelihood, or right to work. But right to information was different in a sense that fundamental right of freedom of expression and speech as enshrined in the constitution as part of Article 19.1a itself was expanded and interpreted to inherently contain right to know. So it was both constitutional and statutory. That's what kind of makes it different from other rights-based legislations. And the third thing is that most of the rights-based, other rights-based legislations had a policy precursor. It had a policy precursor was experimented with in the past, whereas right to information represented a policy departure. There was not even a single policy which allowed citizens to seek information from the state. So in that sense, right to information is a valid case of institutional change and pretty dramatic. And you see that even though the state has tried to scuttle the law, even though the state has tried to blunt the law, dilute the law in the course of the last 10 to 15 years, citizens have been using right to information all over India. A modest estimate actually pegs the figure at 30 million, and that does not include the right to information applications filed at the subnational level. And coming back to Muslim, Muslim's case is interesting in a sense that you have these users of RTI in every district in India who use RTI regularly. So there are categories of RTI users. So there are one-off users. There are institutional users of RTI, like academics or people who belong to the NGOs and so on and so forth. But there is a core of RTI users who use RTI regularly, and I, I call them agents of accountability. This actually talks to the literature on the local intermediaries or linkmen between the modern state and the traditional society, where they engage with the state and they engage with the society as well. But this is a new kind of elite agency which has actually emerged on the ground after the right to information, where they have actually used right to information to gain not only services, but to also gain some kind of social and political dominance. And so right to information in that sense, if you see it unfolding at the local level, is also inextricably linked to the local politics. There are RTI users at the local level who actually file regular RTIs in a hope that they will be able to nail their rival at the local level. Or I will give you a case of use of RTI by a minority community, where a person from minority community was actually filing a lot of right to information in, the, in his village to get services for his own kith and kins and his, in his community. As a result, what happened was in this village, an alternative access to power opened up. So people also started going to him to get things done. Right. And so that kind of opened up a new power alternative in the village and that belonged to a minority community. So these kind of interesting things are happening at the local level, which actually needs a more granular ethnographic kind of probing 
to understand what's what's actually happening. I have done a little bit of it in the in the eastern Indian state of Bihar, but I would like to kind of expand it further to explore some of these facets. That's really fascinating. And, you know, one of the things that it brings up is the ways in which obviously kind of national level changes, right, can really influence these local level dynamics. The other thing, of course, that your entire conversation, in a sense, leads us to wonder is what is it that changed that allowed India to go from a position where kind of the norm of secrecy was the norm, right? And it seemed to be supported by and to support so many of the elites to a point where it actually ultimately passes the Right to Information Act. So can you lead us a little bit through that story? Because it's a different story than what we might think of in terms of civil society demands or even sort of global norms. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you call the layering of change? There are three or four dominant narratives about the evolution of RTI. And one is the most popular kind of narrative around social movement, that there was a social movement, there was a people's movement that gained kind of a national level character, which put pressure on the state and the state yielded to the pressure. Of course, these actors were working from both within and outside the state. The second argument, which is actually offered is about dense interpersonal elite network. Actually, these agents were from the elite background and they kind of forged a dense interpersonal elite linkages, which actually played a consequential role in the promulgation of Right to Information Act at the national level. There's a third argument about the political opportunity. There was a political opportunity with the change of political regime. The regime was more access to information friendly, and hence the social actors took advantage of that short window of opportunity to demand right to information or to kind of assist the state to promulgate such an act. And, and so these are three or four dominant narratives. Of course, there's political claim making as well that who did it. And so there is political claim making by the party who actually promulgated right to information that they actually thought about it for the first time. And they are the ones who promulgated it. This book kind of problematizes the, these dominant narratives by bringing in a more kind of a long durée, incremental view of change. You know, it's a more gradual view of change where I argue that ideas on openness actually started emerging incrementally, endogenously. Uh, from within the state right since independence. So it's, it's not something which happened in the early 90s or the early 2000s. It actually started emerging right since independence. And I see it happening in two layers. I call it a layered tipping point. Tipping point has got three distinct characteristics. So one it is evolutionary, it is incremental, it is endogenous, and there's a prominent role of ideas. Second, that one should be able to delineate small interlinked changes spread across the timeline to be able to explain the outcome, to be able to explain the causal mechanism. And the third, that changes are evolving over time. In Right to Information as well, the ideas on openness actually emerged very slowly, incrementally since 1947. And it actually happened in layers. What happens is that around the nested norm, a new norm or the new idea emerges on the fringes and slowly moves to the policy center stage to replace the nested norm, which persisted for a long period of time. In the case of institutional change in information regime in India, we see a similar process happening. In the first phase, which starts from the independent in 1947 till 1989, you see this churning of ideas happening within the parliament, within the government committees, churning happening within the state. So on one hand, state is pushing for more 
secrecy, as I already mentioned in 67, the Official Secrets Act was amended to an even stronger version. So it kind of leads to what Paul Pearson called locks in effect. You know, the norm of secrecy was actually locked in at all the systemic levels. You know, at the same time, what was happening was some segments of the state were expressing more openness, were actually sympathizers towards ideas of openness. You know, and these were the nascent ideas of openness, which emerged from primarily three sources. One source was the report of the government committees, which were constituted during that time. You had Press Law Inquiry Committee. You had something called the Appleby Report of 1953. Uh, So throughout 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you had these reports of the government committees, which actually talked about excessive secrecy in the government and raised the issue of exigency of openness. The second source was the judiciary. Judiciary approached the question of freedom of expression and speech from the vantage point of freedom of press. And so the whole idea that you cannot have freedom of expression and speech unless there's free information dissemination in the public domain is something that started emerging from within the judiciary rights in early 1950s. So the Article 191A was started being looked upon in a new way as something which is related to not only freedom of expression and speech, but also freedom of press, freedom to disseminate information and so on and so forth. And the third source which actually expressed nascent rudimentary ideas on openness was from the opposition itself. The opposition demanded greater openness of the state. The opposition demanded access and privilege to access information which was usually not extended to them from the state. And so, for instance, in 1965, there was a ruling of the speaker in the lower house where the speaker of the house extended privilege to the opposition members to quote freely from the documents which were secret and treated confidential. This happened because of the pressure from the opposition. And the root cause of this kind of demand was that the ruling party had exclusive privilege to the information within the public authorities. And this privilege was actually questioned by the members of the opposition. What happens in the second phase, which starts from the 1989 onwards in my my book, and this is the second layer, you see that nascent ideas on openness or the rudimentary ideas on openness which emerged on the fringes started slowly moving to the policy center stage. All parties which actually formed government from 1989 onwards, most of these parties in their election manifestos expressed desire or declared that there was a political commitment towards promulgating something like access to information. Policy processes were started within the state. Cabinet committees were constituted constituted, and so on and so forth. There was also a kind of an effort to build an epistemic consensus within the state around the issue of access to information. Judiciary also sharpened its stance. So Article 19, in the initial phase, the judiciary only touched upon this issue tangentially. But in this phase, in the second phase, the judiciary actually started interpreting Article 191A of the Indian Constitution as inherently containing right to know. I've actually gone gone into detail in discussing these cases to show how judiciary actually interpreted fundamental right as inherently containing right to know. So you see that in the first layer, the ideas which were on the fringes moved to the policy center stage in the second layer, eventually displacing the persisting norm of secrecy in 2005. Right. So my argument is that had the state thinking not moved favorably towards the idea of openness, it would have dealt with the same social actors in a different way, as we have seen happening in the case of sedition law, where if the state thinking has not moved favorably towards removing an archaic colonial law of sedition law, they would 
deal with the social actors who demand it in a different manner, right? So that's how I kind of problematize these dominant narratives and kind of add to the existing explanations. No, and I think it's absolutely fascinating. And like I said, I like the attention to the changes within the state, right? I think that that's what's really added here. You also, in the book, show a series of other state-level initiatives, far back as the 1990s, that either in different states or over different sectors, that we see some of these kind of moves towards openness, towards information or right to know, for instance. Can you say a little bit about why we had some movement earlier in some areas than in others? There's always a point where I wish I could have dug deeper into those issues. Not many people have actually written about these state-level initiatives. There are also not much record which are available. But whatever little records which are available definitely kind of conclude that the state-level initiatives had different kind of background and context. There was different politics at play. At the subnational level, you had individual initiatives. For instance, in Madhya Pradesh, which is a central state in India, 1980 batch IS officer Harshman actually on his own initiative provided access to information to the people of Bilaspur. Bilaspur is a place in Madhya Pradesh. And Harshmandar was the commissioner of this Bilaspur division. And in 1996, he actually gave a government order where the people of Bilaspur were actually granted the right to information for the public distribution system. And in the second phase, in 1996, the RTI in Bilaspur was extended to other departments as, as well. And this was followed by other similar initiatives at the subnational level in Madhya Pradesh, which actually finally led to the promulgation of Madhya Pradesh Right to Information Act. Similarly, in Rajasthan, there was a whole lot of a movement towards right to information at the subnational level. As we all know, Rajasthan was the epicenter of the social movement around demanding right to information. And the state as well actually promised opening up the local records at the subnational level. And there was this whole contestation between the social movement or the actors of the social movement and the state officials to extend right to information to the citizens of Rajasthan. Interestingly, what happened is that most of these state right to information ordinances or laws were passed after 1997. So Tamil Nadu was the first state to actually enact right to information. And interestingly, this happened after... The chief minister's conference, which took place in 1997, which actually in its recommendations recommended that the state should take lead in enacting right to information in their own respective states. And so it can be connected to this chief minister's conference in 1997. And this is what I indicate in my book. There was Goa Right to Information Act in 1997 as well. There was Karnataka, so southern states. Uttar Pradesh into early 2000 actually enacted their own code of practice on access to information. And there are different theories to it. One theory suggests that it happened because of the pressure from the World Bank and the IMF, the international financial institutions, and the state actually started enacting right to information as part of that structural adjustment package. And the second view is that mostly it was because of the social movement or the pressure from the journalists. But, you know, at least the case of Madhya Pradesh and Rajasthan shows that there's a lot of contestation which was happening at the local level. Madhya Pradesh was more state-driven. Madhya Pradesh was more driven by the chief minister, the political will of the chief minister. Rajasthan was more of a state society kind of synergy or the state society negotiations, which started from the early 1990s 
which led to the Rajasthan right to information. So there are different theories to it. And it's really hard to pinpoint what exactly led to the enactment of these state level initiatives. Nonetheless, they actually form an important component of this entire story. I'm actually keen to dig deeper into each of these states to know what actually happened. I think that the book as a whole opens a lot of fascinating questions. One of the things I'm left wondering about is to what extent these kinds of ideas and ideational change is in itself again reversible, right? And so in some ways, I think of this in alignment with the changes towards democratization and towards openness and freedoms. And of course, we're in a world where we're seeing those kind of take a step back, a lot of backsliding. Do we think of freedom of information in the same light as that? Do we have concerns that it can start to be rolled back as much as it was put forth? I see it uh, happening in a, occurring in a continuum in the sense that if in the context of right to information, if you imagine an accountability continuum, at the one end, end of the continuum are the information givers and the other end is represented by the information seekers, the middle is the space for accountability. And often, in at least in the Indian case, and also in Mexico and other places, often you see that the relationship between the two the demand side and supply side is often tumultuous. It's not a relationship which is cordial relationship, so to speak. And so you see that in India, and probably India is, is the only, perhaps one of the places in the world where right to information activists are facing a lot of backlash from the nexus which has exploitative nexus which has taken root during the secrecy regime for a long period of time. And now what is happening is that right to information is actually revealing a lot of these nexuses and right to information activists are facing the backlash in terms of threats, in terms of getting beaten up. And also some of them have been actually killed by this corrupt nexus. And so the relationship between the two is tumultuous. But not only that, you see it manifesting at different levels. Invariably, if you talk about right information activists to a government, about right information activists or the users of right to information, the bureaucrats will usually have a very negative view of these right seekers of information. There's always reluctance to part with information. There's pendency of cases. And so the relationship between the two is often tumultuous. It's often problematic. As a result, what has happened is that the, the day right to information was promulgated in 2005, right after that, you see right to information playing an instrumental role in exposing a lot of corruption, both grand and petty. And there's a lot of pushback from the state. And the, so the state, you know, there have been efforts to dilute the law, amend the law. In fact, in 2013, there was an amendment which was suggested by the government to exclude political parties from the purview of the right to information. Similarly, there was an effort to exclude file notings from the right to information purview. And perhaps most significant attack came in 2019 with an amendment which actually weakened the regulator, weakened the information commission, which plays an adjudicatory role in the right to information regime. So the central government will now decide the emoluments of the information commissioners and also decide the tenure of information commissioners, which essentially meant that they will be under control of the central government. And this kind of weakened the right to information regime in some ways. And at the same time, there's a massive pushback from the citizens. Citizens have been using right to information even during the COVID surge that India experienced during the second wave, when the government was actually stonewalling a lot of requests from the citizens to seek information. A lot of right to information were actually filed by the citizen, citizen activists to seek information around the oxygen supply 
number of COVID beds available for the citizens and the amount of money which has been spent on ventilators and so on and so forth, right? Definitely what has happened is that even though there's a pushback from the state, there's an equal pushback from the citizens as well. And so the power of RTI actually now lies in the hands of the citizens, where even though in the light of efforts to dilute the law, citizens have been actually using RTI, and this is a good sign. And so my thinking is that similar to the churning between ideas which took place before the promulgation of Right to Information, which played a consequential role in the enactment of Right to Information Act 2005, a similar kind of churning is taking place right now after 17 years of Right to Information Act between the nested norm of secrecy, which has actually not still not changed or still kind of gradually changing, and the new norm of openness, which has actually emerged from the ground. And so where this churning will lead us to is something that has to be seen. But I'm actually quite hopeful that the kind of use of RTI that we have experienced in the last 10, 15 years is encouraging for Indian democracy. Yeah, and I have to say, one of the things that we don't pay enough attention to, right, when we're thinking about things like democratic backsliding and change, et cetera, is that contestation over what might seem like first level or first order rights. And I think that you've really both put your finger on the importance of it, but really shown us very nicely in the book how that negotiation, how those changes of norms and ideas, but also how the contestation across them takes place. Himanshu, I want to thank you. And I also want to make sure that if there's anything else that you want us all to know, that you have a chance to tell us. I want to kind of touch upon the issue of contestation. I feel that information is something which is, you know, not only from the perspective of the citizens, but also another interesting question which needs to be asked is, when does the state shut and when does it open? If we see state as this big black box, that is something which needs to be kind of problematized in the sense there are different segments to the state. If you disaggregate the state, you will see different kind of responses or different kind of accountability mechanisms instituted by different segments of the state. And so an important question to be asked, especially in the context of democratic backsliding is that when does the state shut and when does it open? And it's not always that the state shuts, right? It, it also opens sometimes. And, and so there's a need to kind of unpack this whole shutting and opening up business of the state to understand the relationship between the accountability regimes, the citizens' use of tools of accountability, and the deepening of democracy. The fact that now there's a culture of scrutiny with the promulgation of Right to Information Act is actually surely a good news for democracy, especially in a liberal, diverse, multi-ethnic democracies like India, where there's a culture of scrutiny. People, even if uh, the state is shutting down, even if the state is actually not giving out information, citizens are actually using Right to Information to ask vital questions from the state. That in itself tells us about the existing culture of scrutiny which is so important for the health of any democracy. Thank you. I think that's an important message to take away. And again, thank you so much for sharing this with us. I really, really appreciate it um, and hope you have a great day. Thank you, Ellen. Good talking to you.